Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find, find out, out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. <laughs> because I want you to tell, tell me, me something, something I, I don't know. know. Have you ever wondered, for instance, about the relationship between winning an election and winning at life? The Harvard MD and economist Anupam Jenna wondered just that. The question that we wanted to study is, does being a world leader shave years off of your life? In other words, does the stress of politics kill? So Jenna and his colleagues did a study. We analyzed data on over 500 world leaders from 17 countries over 300 years. And we compared mortality of world leaders to those who were runners-up in the elections. Now, comparing winners to runners-up is a nice way to compare two people who are theoretically similar in terms of socioeconomic standing and life expectancy with one big difference. That one won the election and another one lost. So, what did the researchers find? What we found was that world leaders died nearly three years earlier than their counterparts who did not serve in office. Welcome to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. I'm Stephen Dubner, and the theme of tonight's show, politicaling. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is coming to you tonight from the former swamp known as Washington, D.C. Would you please welcome our panelists for the evening? CBS News Chief White House Correspondent Major Garrett, Washington Post columnist and humorist Alexandra Petri, and former Hillary Clinton campaign manager Robbie Mook. Major Garrett, we will start with you. What do we know so far? We know that you've been a top political reporter for several print publications and TV networks currently with CBS News. We know you host the Takeout podcast. We know that President Obama personally chastised you for asking if he was content with the Iranian nuclear deal. It's always nice to tick off a president. We also know that you wanted to be an oceanographer and an actor before becoming a journalist and that your pet peeve is weak coffee. Yes. So, Major Garrett, why don't you tell us something we don't yet know about you? Something you don't know about me, uh, and there are only two witnesses to this event, I once threw up in front of John Boehner. (laughs) (laughs) He was about to become House Conference Chairman, and he invited me to dinner because I was one of the reporters who had covered this political earthquake as it was. I was with two other aides of his, and we went to a restaurant that no longer exists in Washington. Because people kept throwing up Because people kept throwing up. (laughs) Lots of steaks, lots of wine. You could smoke in restaurants back then, so cigars all around the table. Four bottles of Merlot over four hours. I stood up, I walked to the door. It was cold, it was late November. As soon as that cold air, Merlot, cigars, hit me, right there. And he said, Major, I'm almost right behind you, but I'm gonna hold off. (laughs) Lovely. Our next panelist tonight, Alexandra Petri. Let's see what we know about you. We know you've written uh, lots of journalism, several plays, and one book called A Field Guide to Awkward Silences. 
We know you won the O. Henry pun off with a story including the name of every American president up to that point, yes? That you want to give a want to give a quick sample? Oh gosh. Something like I've been watching tons of television lately to see and learning how to speak, do I want to add ums or not? Because if a son named Jeff or a son named Mike can be president, maybe a lady can. I wouldn't be mad a son one. Okay, I do remember it. <laughs> there you go, very, um, good. Oh, very good. That's good. Nicely done. We know you grew up here in D.C. as the daughter of Wisconsin Congressman Tom Petri. We know you competed on Jeopardy and did particularly well in the math jokes category. So, uh, Alexandra, keeping in mind tonight's political theme, why don't you tell us something we don't know about you? Uh, During college, I actually ran a campaign for the uh, vice president of the undergraduate council on a platform of replacing the undergraduate council with a Habsburg prince. (laughs) Surprisingly, we did not win. Yeah, that is surprising. Thank you, Alexandra. Our final panelist tonight, Robbie Mook. We know that you, sir, managed the 2016 presidential campaign for Hillary Clinton and before that several campaigns that had different results. We know that you are uh, admired for your easygoing manner and your data-driven approach. As the Los Angeles Times noted, and I quote here, few people who have risen so far so fast in a presidential campaign are so uncolorful. Robbie, we know you grew up in Vermont, that your dad was a physics professor at Dartmouth. So, Robbie Mook, why don't you tell us something we don't yet know about you? Well, so I, did, I got my start in politics in Vermont, and uh, usually you run for office by town there for state representative and so on. And actually, the most efficient way to campaign in Vermont is to go to the garbage dump because there's no municipal garbage removal service. So everybody has to show oh. up at the garbage dump. And when they're throwing their trash in the dumpster, you're shaking their hand no and kidding. getting their signature or whatever. That is a great fact. We are thrilled to have the three of you here to help us play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Here's how it's going to work. Guests from the audience will come on stage and try to wow us with their IDKs or I don't knows. You're free to ask them anything you want. Ultimately, you will pick a winner based on three very simple criteria. Number one, did they tell you something you truly did not know? Okay. Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, was it demonstrably true? So to help with that demonstrably true part, I'd like to introduce tonight's real-time fact checker, Ms. Femi Oke. <laughs> Femi, 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 so happy to have you here. Good to be here, Stephen. Femi is an award-winning journalist who grew up in London, became a self-described radio geek at age 10, and has since worked for the BBC, CNN, NPR, and many more. Femi, you've covered a lot of politics. Any particularly juicy stories about world leaders, perhaps? 2005, Stephen. I was on assignment in Uganda for CNN International. So that's like regular CNN, but with posh accents. (laughs) (laughs) And President Museveni was there with the First Lady, Janet. So he gets on stage and he tells the audience that every night he and the First Lady get into bed with me. And then there's silence like this. (laughs) And then he tells them he never misses a broadcast of mine on CNN International. Big <laughs> Femi, so glad you are here. It's time now to play our little game tonight's theme. Remember, politicaling. Would you please welcome our first contestant, Tommy Bobo. 
Tommy, nice to have you. Tell us a bit about yourself, please. I am an artist, educator, and a data analyst of sorts, and I make art pieces using a lot of data. Okay, very good, Tommy. I'm ready. So are our panelists, Major Garrett, Alexandra Petri, and Robbie Mook. So what do you know that's worth knowing that you think we don't know? Well, the U.S. government has given out roughly two million of these over the last century. The last large batch was made in 1945, but they're still in use today. What did we stockpile in the 40s that we're still using to this day? I so hope the answer is not condoms. (laughs) 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 Sorry. There was a mind mill going on. Is that right? You were were going for condoms, too. Always. I'm hoping it's those Rosie the Riveter posters. Oh. But it's something they give out. Yes. Is it in a can? No. Does anybody remember surplus cheese? Anybody get surplus cheese? Yeah. 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 Covered lots of stories about that when I was a young reporter. Yeah. Tommy, are, are, we, are they close-ish? Uh, they're really far away. You, you really wanna, far do you, you want to give us some hints or you want to put us out ah. of our misery? Okay. Well, the War Department, as part of its preparations for the ground invasion of Japan, uh, ordered 500,000 Purple Hearts. They had learned from D-Day and the wider Pacific Theater that the casualties were going to be high and that the war would probably go on for two more years. When Japan surrendered after the two atomic bombings, the ground invasion was canceled, and all of these Purple Hearts ended up in a warehouse. The surplus medals have survived through the Korean War, the Vietnam War, two wars in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, and all the minor conflicts in between. And there are still estimated 70 to 85,000 still out there that haven't been awarded. And the medals have been sitting around for so long that in the 80s and 90s, they actually had to go back in and redo the ribbons and kind of clean them up and prepare them to be awarded. Um, They tried to order a bunch during the war in Kosovo. The press got very upset because they were like, oh, we're going to see a lot of casualties coming from this conflict. As I mentioned earlier, about 1.9 million Purple Hearts have been given out over the last century. More than half of those were from World War II alone, um, which kind of gives you a sense of how big that conflict actually was. And I learned about the surplus while I was researching a new art piece that will be going up on the old Walter Reed campus in DC. And over the next year, the lights in front of Walter Reed will be blinking from white to purple. And it will take the entire year to go through each of the two million. So uh, a purple heart surplus. Um, I'm curious, has the, uh, the standard uh, or requirement for receiving a Purple Heart stayed constant over the years or no? Um, it's basically you have to be um, wounded or killed in the line of duty. So if you hurt yourself just on base, you don't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for a brief period, it actually went to civilians, um, to people at the State Department and Foreign Service officers, but there was an issue, and Congress passed an act so it can only go to active military personnel. Yeah. Robbie, Alexandra, Major? That's great news for, like, World War III that we've got, like, a stockpile of them. We've got, like, (laughs) 50,000 ready to go. You you don't want to be that guy waiting to get your Purple Heart. And when do the lights start blinking, and at what sequence? Uh, Basically, there's going to be 14 lights, and every one and a half minute, basically they'll be transitioning. So it actually kind of emulates the amount of time it would take you to say someone's name. Um, And so it will take that full year span. Hmm. And who's behind that project? Uh, Cultural DC 
Femi, okay, before we finish up with Tommy, uh, let's check in with you. A stockpile of Purple Hearts, is it legit? And what can you add to Tommy's story? Totally legit. A Purple Heart is purple because it's based on the badge of military merit, which was introduced at the end of the Revolutionary War, the American Revolutionary War, or as we call it in the UK, Thanksgiving. (laughs) (laughs) So only one president has actually been awarded a Purple Heart, and that was JFK for duty in the Pacific Islands. But... Our current president also has one. He was given one last year on the campaign trail by a supporter called Louis Dorfman. And President Trump said, I always wanted to get a Purple Heart. This was much easier. Femi, okay. Thank you very much. Tommy Bobo, thanks for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Mandy O'Neill. Hey, Mandy, who are you? What do you do? I'm an organizational psychologist and a professor at George Mason University. Excellent. What do you have for us tonight? Well, I have a very uh, interesting version of politics. My work looks at the emotional life of organizations, which, as you might imagine, has some political aspects to it. For my most recent study... I spent several months embedded in the workplace of a profession that I would argue is one of the most compassionate, loving professions, but is actually a bit different than the image they sometimes portray and are portrayed in the media and public reports. So can you guess what profession that is? Robbie Mook, I'm guessing political campaigns are just brimming with compassion and love. (laughs) So when I hear the word embedded, I think possibly about the military. Would it have any application there? They would be very flattered to be compared to the military, hmm. but it is this, not the military. It's not the military. I feel like this is just going to be me throwing shade on some profession, yeah, basically. Yeah, I know. I was like, yeah. It's like uh, evil lawyers. Um, <laughs> I actually tried to study lawyers, but they were um, too uh, legalistic and did not want to be a part of the study. So, uh. <laughs> It's the kind of profession, unlike professors, that people like to make TV shows about. Police? Getting very warm. Warmer. Like the crime scene investigator they, people? They are the first responders to many crimes. Veterinarians. <laughs> Isn't that the way you do it in D.C.? That's what, that's We're circling. The po- not the police. The Coast Guard. No. <laughs> getting a little colder. Can we call a lifeline to the audience? Help us out. Firefighters. Firefighters. So firefighters, you found in your research, is a group that is, you're saying the reputation and the reality are very different in the compassion and love department? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, really in a lot of aspects. And and as part of my work, I've studied a lot of workplaces, ranging from community hospitals to Silicon Valley semiconductor firms. And across all of those professions, but particularly so with firefighters, the thing that's so surprising is how often they tell me about how much love they have for their colleagues. And it's affection and caring and compassion and fondness, um, so much so that it's really quite different than the, the tough, heroic, kind of masculine image they give off, which is also part of the profession. But when you investigate a little bit, you find out that this is one of the most loving, compassionate professions. Um, but actually, in my effort to get as many uh, puns in my publications as possible, I asked the question, is love all you need? And the answer is no, actually. So when we're looking at how they perform, it turns out you need a different emotion. You need joviality, which is humor and 
um, pranks and amusement and excitement. And that turns out to be a much better predictor of how quickly they get to your house when you call 911, how they no work as a kidding. team. No kidding. Really? They don't yeah. play with matches. They, they don't, don't play yeah, with that. Yeah, they don't advise playing with matches. Like yeah, some, Wait, so when I call 911, I should be like, send me the most jovial firefighter you have. <laughs> exactly. Who's the funny Yet guy? Yet loving. Yet yes, loving. Yes, exactly. <laughs> should there be like a separate line, like 811 for the jovial firehouse? <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, they really do talk about it as part of their hiring. So when I ask them, well, what kind of person would fit in? No stiffs. Um, mm. So that's the most important criteria. And it's part of it that they spend a lot of time together. Their shifts are longer. They cook together. They are around each other for longer times than, let's say, an eight- or ten-hour shift for a cop or somebody else. They do. And that's part of it, and, and actually part of the similarity to military. But it's, I've seen it in all different professions. I mean, semiconductor engineers actually spend a lot of time together, too. But when they talk about their relationships, it's the same thing. You hear about you know, the, the bi-weekly beer and bullshit sessions where they bond and they get to know each other, and, and those relationships really carry over into the rest of their careers in some cases. How, how do you measure it? Like, you're, you're saying that you know the joviality level of one firehouse versus another? Yes, is that true? Yes. How, do you, how, do you, how do you determine I it? I mean, it's, it's like the best job ever. So um, the trick is you have to get them acting naturally. So that's not always the easiest thing. And sometimes I send in spies, you know, sort of organizational spies, to really observe people acting naturally in the workplace and catch people doing what they do normally. Um, so we, we notice who's telling the best jokes, and sometimes they involve me in the jokes. They clamber off the engine, and they're half are wearing clown shoes. That's okay. It's okay. You should be fine. You should be more and more of them keep piling out of the fire truck. <laughs> One after the other, after the other, they after the other. They squirt you with a water hose. I guess it's their job, actually. Right. They're supposed right. to do that. Right. I'm curious, when you have a finding like this, have you published it yet? Yes, it came out in February in Academy Management Journal, one of our uh, premier journals. All right, congratulations. Here's what I want to know. Do the management types that rule corporate life and institutional life up and down when they see a paper like this, do they try to co-opt the firehouse joviality model for their firms? Is that what will happen? They do. And actually, one of the ways that we work on that is by saying, well, you know, this is how science works. We say, well, it worked here. Let's go to a totally different context mm. and see if we find it there, too. And especially with the love findings, we're finding it everywhere. I mean, I thought for sure you know, engineers, like these are not going to be the most loving eyes. Silicon Valley is kind of tough, but yeah, so we, we believe that some of this is generalizable and then you tweak it for the context. Femi, okay, firehouse office politics are surprisingly loving and compassionate. What more can you tell us? Mandy, you must know so many practical jokes because firefighters are connoisseurs of pranks. They are. So I looked for a few for us to try later. This one involves saran wrap, duct tape, low light, and a victim. You take your open doorway, you saran wrap the open doorway, and then you wait for the victim to walk into it. <laughs> I think you're one of three people who read my paper, because there's a saran wrap. <laughs> Mandy, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. Would you please welcome our next contestant, John Hudak. How you doing, John? What's your story? I'm currently a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, where I study executive branch politics, the presidency, but I also study something that's even more popular than the president, and that's marijuana. Ah. Uh, what do you have for us tonight? Keeping in mind the theme is uh, politicking. 
So as you may know, eight states and right here in the District of Columbia have legalized marijuana for recreational use. That explains so much of what's been happening since we arrived, I have to say. (laughs) People need it to get through. (laughs) Medical research is happening all over the country in some of the nation's best universities. And so my question for all of you is, how many states can a researcher go to to buy medical marijuana for their research? I'm like, oh, medical research on university campuses. That's what I was doing, medical research. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I always told the cops, it's always for research purposes. Um, ten? So, not quite. You're a little too high. Ooh. Oof. Oh. No, no pun intended. Uh. <laughs> so, let's say five. So, five would make a little bit of sense. That'd be, you know, a decent number of places. About 20% of the states with medical marijuana... But Major, you're also high. So true. And you're not the first person to say that, I assure you. (laughs) So is there a special process you have to go through to become a medical marijuana researcher? And is that part of the clue here, that there's actually a definitive process for this? Yeah, there's an extraordinarily complex process that you have to go through as a qualified researcher just to work with cannabis. So they weed people out. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I'm going to say the state that I grew up in, California, because it thinks of lots of things first, and if any state would think of medical marijuana research first and how to certify it and apply for it and win it, it would be California. So I'll say one, California. Uh, Half of that answer is right. Okay. (laughs) So there's only one state, and there's actually one place in the entire United States where medical researchers can go to get the product they're going to use in their research, and it's Mississippi. So there's a federal government contract with the University of Mississippi where there is a farm where they grow a lot of weed. (laughs) And any researcher in the United States, despite the fact that about 200 million Americans live in states that have access to medical marijuana, Um, And again, research is being done everywhere. That's the only place they can go to get it. They can't run down to their dispensary in Denver or their dispensary in San Francisco. They've got to go to Ole Miss. And so there are some perks to this. Actually, there's really only one perk to this, and that is in the 50 years that Ole Miss has had this contract, they haven't had any security problems. No one's hopping the fence or breaking in to steal weed. My guess is you can get better quality weed somewhere else on Ole Miss's campus. Um, But... (laughs) The negatives are tremendous, and what's happening is it's holding back legitimate research into the medical value of cannabis. There's no competition that would motivate uh, that grower to try to compete in any sort of market sense. So what's happening is that the grower there grows the marijuana that he produces, and the researchers have to pretty much pick from what he has. And it's not keeping up with the kind of innovation that's happening in states all across the U.S. in terms of potency, in terms of the mixture of different chemicals within a cannabis, and the vehicles of de- delivery, whether you smoke or you vape or you use edibles or creams or whatever. Brownies. Brownies, exactly. Um, but You, uh, you say that with such an time, experienced stone, I have to say. <laughs> brownies. Happy I mean, to like leave never, out brownies. The irony is I've never tried it my whole life. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Accurate fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It wasn't at the dump. (laughs) They weren't throwing that stuff out. (laughs) So for years, the federal government said there's a requirement that we only have one grower for marijuana in order to meet our treaty obligations. 
And that was an absolute lie. Um, the reality is that every other drug in the same category as marijuana, researchers can get from a variety of sources in the United States. So it's easier for a medical researcher to get LSD in the United States or heroin than it is for that researcher to get mm. marijuana. <laughs> and so... Uh, to be fair, the federal government in August relaxed that requirement and said, you know, the, the monopoly at Ole Miss does not have to stand. We are willing to grant more contracts to more places to grow. Aren't other universities interested in this research, especially since August, if they've opened up the competitive bidding for this, why aren't other universities jumping in? Actually, UMass has tried to do this for years, and they have a very qualified researcher there who has tried and tried, and every year he's been shut down because they're maintaining this monopoly. Um, But now, the most surprising part of this is the federal bureaucracy is being really slow. And they're dragging shocking. their feet. I know, it's, it's one of those shocking things that Sad. happens. Yeah. <laughs> exclamation point. Isn't the bureaucracy is stopping the bots. Yeah. You dismantle the administrative state, man. Yeah, if you dismantle Sad. the administrative state, it's going to be way easier to get weed in the United States. Green jobs. <laughs> Femi, John Hudak tells us there's only one federally sanctioned grower of marijuana for medical research. Anything to add? From October of last year, facilities could apply for bulk marijuana growing facilities or licenses. And as of March the 1st, 16 applications are currently in. Perhaps there might be three or four or five by the end of this year. Hmm. Good to know. John, I have one, one last question for you. Are we to gather from your presentation tonight that the official position of the Brookings Institution is that anyone should be able to grow pot anywhere? <laughs> so I will say the Brookings Institution takes no inst- institutional position on any issue, nor do I in my research. But what I will tell you is the Brookings Institution Press recently published my new book, Marijuana, A Short History, which I encourage all of you to go buy. Oh, no. all right. Nicely dodged. Nicely dodged. Thank you so much, John Hudak. It is time now for a quick break. When we return, more contestants. We make our panelists tell us something we don't know. If you'd like to be a guest on a future show or attend one, please visit tmsidk.com on June 15th and 16th. We're at Symphony Space in Manhattan. You can also follow us on social media at tmsidk underscore show. We will be right back. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our panelists tonight, Major Garrett, Alexandra Petri, and Robbie Mook. Our fact checker is Femi Oke, and tonight's theme, you'll recall, is politicaling. To that end, earlier tonight, we asked our live audience the following question. Imagine you're the president of the United States, and you're granted exactly one executive order. What would it be, and why? Panelists, I'd love each of you to read one reply. Major, you want to take one? Yes, this comes from Jacob L., and I quote, I would order a hamburger with lettuce, (laughs) tomato, onion, and avocado with a side of onion rings. The order would make for a delicious lunch and raise few questions of constitutional authority. (laughs) Well done, well done. Alexandra, beat that. 
Oh, well, mine's also food-related, actually. Meredith Kay said, I would order that slices of cucumber be added to all reservoirs so that all citizens could enjoy the refreshing taste of cucumber <laughs> water from their taps. <laughs> all right, all right. Robbie, I dare you to come up with something as benign. I, I know. My, my, yeah, I mean, mine's food-related, too. Right. Um, it's, uh, this is from Bryce W. My executive order would prohibit the defiling of the name pizza with pineapple, ah. exas- exacting <laughs> harsh punishments on anyone selling or consuming the vile creation. <laughs> I feel like I would maybe use the bully pulpit a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like, pineapple, vile, sad. You know, like, sort of, like, try to just push it out there. <laughs> you know. Would would Robbie win your support in banning uh, pineapple? No. I know. Oh. Oh, yeah. oh. oh, we oh. got us a town hall going here really all of a sudden. Yeah. 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 Sure. I like it. It is time for us to get back to our game. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Patrick Madden? Patrick, tell us about yourself. I'm a retail analyst from New York City, and I'm the most fashion-disoriented person ever. (laughs) All right, Patrick, the floor is yours. What do you have for us tonight? So, the question is real simple. Which state in the United States was technically the last to become a state? That smells so much like a trick question, doesn't it? Technically is the key word, right? Technically. So was it like a republic before it was a state? It was not a republic, no. Was it a commonwealth? It was not a commonwealth. Was this due to administrative error, or...? It was, indeed. Good call. So not Alaska or Hawaii, we're to assume. So that would be your common answer. Right. Um, it was neither of those. And unless we're in a time warp, it's not Washington, D.C. Not Washington, no, D.C. not no. happened yet. Not happened yet. <laughs> uh, struck a nerve I said there. unless we're in a time warp... <laughs> <laughs> Um, who discovered this? Was it someone within the state or someone outside sure. the so state? Sure, so it was someone who lived in the state. Um, they were actually a retired history teacher. Um, they called this error out in the mid-90s. They discovered it in the mid-90s. They discovered it in the mid-90s. Is this why Mississippi could grow pot? <laughs> <laughs> we were like, we're not a state. So this in the mid-90s, it was discovered. Did this elicit a debate about, well, should we really join or not? I mean, you know, the whole experiment, uh, I don't know. Yeah, it was actually um, discovered in the mid-90s, and as uh, state governments would, uh, you know, with their known efficiency, it wasn't fixed until 2012, actually. It took 16 years to fix this. Is there a clue in, uh, you said it was a retired history professor? Retired history teacher. As the story goes, in the free time, um, in retirement, they were casually perusing the state constitution and noticed a very unfortunate error. And saved the union. Robbie, you're from Vermont. Yeah. Alexander grew up in D.C., not yep. a state yet. Will be soon, I gather, from your... And Major grew up in California. California, Are any of our panelists uh, from the state or a contiguous state? No, they are not. Um, North Dakota? North Dakota, there we go. You got it. North Dakota. North Dakota. So North Dakota technically only just became a state in 2012. Welcome. They filed their statehood initially in 1889, uh, which was a really long time ago. But um, (laughs) it turns out, due to administrative error, they forgot to include Article 11 of their state constitution. 
And Article 11 requires elected executive branch officers to take an oath of office. So for the past century, they technically have not met one of the requirements of the U.S. federal constitution. Uh, So the federal constitution, Article 6, says that um, all executive and judicial officers, both of the United States and of the states, shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support the Constitution, but no religious test shall ever be required. Um, So they technically did not meet the basic requirements for statehood. And like I said, that was discovered by a teacher in the 90s and only just fixed in 2012. Wow. Are, are any other states um, similarly compromised? Or? So it's actually, it's very disturbing the more I looked into it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it goes all folks, the way to the it's top. A trend. So not the same exact error, but there are currently several other states which also don't meet the current requirements for statehood. Wait, so the election, what does this mean for the yeah, election? You know what? <laughs> Wait a second. Oh. oh no! <laughs> I th- I think I'm uh, I'm slowly unraveling the fabric of society, and that's disturbing. <laughs> it's uh, one of my favorite examples, though, is actually Arkansas. In Article 19, Section One of their state constitution, they explicitly say that you cannot hold public office if you're an atheist. Um, which technically critics say they violates the First Amendment right to freedom of religion, so therefore they don't meet the, the requirements for statehood. But to answer your question, there are seven states in total, uh, Maryland, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, and Texas. Pennsylvania. Uh, I didn't hear a lot of states there that you wouldn't be happy to see go, Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> Femioke states that are kind of non-states, including North Dakota being the last state to technically be admitted to our wonderful union. Anything to add to that? It's just bugging me about the North Dakota flag. So it's dark blue, it's a bald eagle carrying an olive branch and then a ribbon in its beak that says, one nation made up of many states. <laughs> <laughs> Femi okay, thank you so much. Patrick Madden, thanks for playing. Thank Great job. Awesome job. And would you please welcome our final contestant of the evening, Christopher Sands. Christopher, how are you? What do you do? do? Um, I'm a professor of Canadian studies at Johns Hopkins uh, School of Advanced International Studies here in Washington. I've never even thought of the phrase Canadian studies. (laughs) I I, I don't say that proudly. (laughs) I, I love Canada. I'm all about it. (laughs) <laughs> uh, tell us something we don't know about, I assume, Canada and politics. In, in fact, it is about Canada. So uh, Canada produces per capita twice as many automobiles, cars and trucks, as does the United States. It's the ninth largest producer of motor vehicles in the world. How did Canada get such a big auto industry? Is the secret to having a high per capita production rate having a very low Small capita? Small number of people, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it helps, it helps. This is an export-driven process, I believe. Uh-huh. When you have a small population, you need people to buy your cars, so definitely export-driven. Expedited by NAFTA? <gasps> no. <Yeah. laughs> no jobs, er- they're moving earlier overseas. than NAFTA. <laughs> Trade's important, but it's earlier than NAFTA. There's a... Big reason for the earlier than that part of the story, right? Yes. And that's what we're trying to drive at. Got, Get that? 
Oh, did Ooh. they get the steering wheel? Come on, come uh, on, keep up. Did they have an especially jovial work environment? <laughs> <laughs> it's always jovial in Canada. Do they make the yes. ones with the steering wheel on the other side? No, no, the Canada British? drives yeah. on the same side as Americans. I guess so. But they make them for yeah. the other side. Yeah. yeah. Yes, they, they did for a while make Those cars with the steering wheel on the other side. That is actually yeah. a useful clue if, uh, if you knew what to do with it. Uh, Christopher, I think we're uh, spinning wheels a little bit here. Do you want to... Uh... That, was, that, was, that was bad, yeah. yeah. Uh, Got a Chris... lot of mileage out of that one. <laughs> I'm just trying to dig in deeper to help save yeah. you. Okay. Christopher, what can you tell us about the uh, automaking powerhouse of Canada? Well, in, in 1904, the year after Henry Ford started Ford Motor Company in Michigan, he opened up a branch in Ontario. And the reason he did it had to do with British imperial trade preferences. By declaring automobiles a Canadian product in the British imperial trade preference system, Canadian-made cars could enter the entire British Empire tariff-free. Ah. Ford, the idea he had was to get out ahead of British manufacturers so they would never have a mass-market automobile. Um, and so, of course, they have Rolls-Royce, and they have Bentley, and they have MG, but they never got the mass market that Ford took over. And General Motors followed suit, and initially it was exports to, uh, to the British Empire that kept Canada going, but then after uh, the end of World War II and the collapse of the British Empire, they started orienting their production towards the United States. So trade agreements, NAFTA, in fact, ended up helping them again. So millions of us drive Canadian cars and trucks, and we don't even know it. In your program, where you teach, um, what is the sign-up rate like for Canadian studies? Uh, is yours one of the very highly subscribed classes? We work very hard to make sure supply meets demand. <laughs> one of you. You just need one student and everything's cool. I believe we would be remiss to, to, to not ask, are you Canadian? Is that how you came to Canadian studies or no? No, ironically, I'm originally from Detroit, which is how I came to cars. Ah, so. ah, very good. So interesting. Femi, okay, the, the super interesting story of how Canada became an automaking powerhouse. What more can you tell us? Christopher, that's a, also a story about the genius of Henry Ford. And pretty much everything he did worked out beautifully. There were one or two spectacular failures. The lost city of Fordlandia is a real thing. Back in 1928, a lot of the rubber was produced by Europeans in Asia. And Henry Ford had this huge car business. How can I make rubber and get rubber and not have to pay British people a lot of money? He was thinking. So he decided to set up a plantation in the northern part of Brazil. The idea was he was going to automate growing rubber trees. It doesn't quite work the same way it works with cars. <laughs> if you put cars next to each other, they don't get blight and they don't have insects and caterpillars destroying them. So by 1945, Fordlandia was kaput. It was done. Henry Ford II sold it back to Brazil, but it is still there. So interesting, Femi, okay. Thank you, Femi, and Christopher Sands, thank you so much for playing. Tell me hey. something I don't know. Great job. If we could, uh, one more round of applause for all our contestants tonight, please. Great job, guys. 
It is time now for our panelists to vote. They will use a ranked voting system to pick their favorites. The contestant with the highest overall ranking will be tonight's winner and will join us back on stage later. All right, then, who will it be? Christopher Sands with, we'll call it Made in Canada. Patrick Madden with North Dakota, the last state. John Hudak with Mississippi Marijuana. Mandy O'Neill with her jovial firefighters or Tommy Bobo with Surplus Purple Hearts. While the votes are being cast, let me ask you a favor. If you like Tell Me Something I Don't Know, spread the word. Give it a nice rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much. Okay, the panelist votes are in. Once again, thanks so much to all our contestants. It's a shame that only one of you can be the winner. But tonight, our winner, with his IDK about surplus purple hearts, Tommy Bobo. Great job, Tommy. Tommy, as a reward, you will receive this Certificate of Impressive Knowledge, which is suitable for framing. You'll also join us back on stage later to face one panelist in the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Now, which panelist will you face? We'll find out after the break when we put our panelists through a frightening lightning round that's coming up right after this. Welcome back. It is time for our panelists, Major Garrett, Alexandra Petri, and Robbie Mook, to answer some lightning round questions crafted especially for them. Major Garrett, political reporter extraordinaire, we are going to start with you in 10 seconds or less. Please answer the following. Best president in history and why? Abraham Lincoln, he saved the union. Worst president and why? Nixon, he resigned. You followed candidate Trump during the election. Tell us something we don't know about President Trump. Six songs on the iPad, they all bleed your ears. <laughs> Major Garrett, what do Robbie Mook and Kellyanne Conway have in common? They both are uncertain what Donald Trump means certain times. <laughs> Washington, D.C. is different from every other national capital on Earth. How? Well, I live in it. That's one way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The reason that District of Columbia is not a state is the Founding Fathers said they looked at London, they looked at Paris particularly, and said those cities, if they're the national capital and they also have a state, they will be the first one perpetually at the trough. They will always crowd out those of the other states, and that's why the District of Columbia is a federal district and not a state. That was the founder's original idea about this. It is clearly not the idea of those joining us this evening or (laughs) those of us who live in the District of Columbia, but that's how it started. Excellent. Major, your favorite band is Led Zeppelin. Which member of the band, Living or Dead, would have been the best politician? A John Bonham, because he uh, didn't play drums in quarters or four beats. He played them in three, so he was an innovator. That makes a good politician. Excellent answer. Other than yourself, what's your favorite major? A liberal arts major, <laughs> major major, or URSA major? 
Uh, my favorite major are the, are the ones that my children are pursuing in college. My yeah. daughter, uh, Hispanic Studies and International Relations. My son, Physics and Philosophy. Those are their majors, and they're my favorites. Very nice. Aww. Very well done, Major Garrett. Wow, Thank yeah. you so much. Alexander Petri, Washington Post columnist and humorist around town. You, are you ready? I guess I'm ready. In 10 seconds or less, roughly, um, we're told that you took your job at the Washington Post after turning down an offer to study Renaissance poetry at Oxford. Details, please? Well, I figured that of the two dying industries, Renaissance <laughs> poetry had literally died earlier than journalism, which is still sort of clinging on by its cliff nails. That's a word. Good call. <laughs> Since you did so well on Jeopardy in the math jokes category, what do you call someone who likes dividing things into two equal parts? A magician? Like a saw lady person? Mm, it's a bisexual. Oh. <laughs> wow. This two-dimensional shape with many sides is also something you might call a dead parrot. A dead parrot, dead bird. What, uh, what is this? This two-dimensional shape. Which math is this? Two-dimensional shape with many sides. Robbie Mook, you look oh, like Oh, Robbie got it. Give him the point. It's polygon. Polygon. Nicely done. <laughs> Alexander, we're told that at age eight, you wrote a Shakespeare comic book with cat characters. It was called Romeo and Juliet and the Catpulets. How deep did you go for my bio? We go deep. This we go deep. Good, is... good. <laughs> Talk about opposition research, man. Yeah. I mean, this is heavy. My question for you is this. In retrospect, did your parents praise you too much or too little for this play? <laughs> In retrospect, I think any amount would have been too much, so I'm going to go with too much. All right. <laughs> Um, we know that you also wrote a play in which Shakespeare's tragic heroines go to summer camp. Oh, yeah. Who wins? Um, Lady Macbeth briefly wins. But then Ophelia prevails. Basically, the idea of the play is they, if they all went to summer camp and switched plays, they'd fix their, all the problems with their lives. But the real tragedy is everyone's in the wrong play, man. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you very much, Alexandra Petri. Great job. All right, Robbie, we'll start you with uh, an easy one. Tell us something we don't know, large or small, about running a presidential campaign. It, <laughs> it's like a lot of millennials, just mm. like, like a lot, mm. and a lot of like beanbags and Frito-Lays, <laughs> and, and it's awesome. <laughs> We've been told you do a great uh, Bill Clinton impersonation. Uh, Prove it. <laughs> I don't work for her anymore, but I'd be a dead man if I did it. <laughs> All right, imagine that you are the president of the United States and you are granted exactly one executive order. What would it be and why? I want to go to Mars. Like, how cool is that? Like, I think we should just go to Mars. I don't know if you could do that through executive <laughs> order, but like, I'd try to make it happen. <laughs> Robbie, what's the best musical about politics that isn't Hamilton? Oh, 1776. All right, easy peasy. Yeah. What's the worst political slogan you came up with but didn't use? Um, 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> actually, I can answer this by referring people to WikiLeaks, they where leaked, our yeah. entire list uh, of right. proposed slogans is posted. <laughs> Robbie Mook, well done. Thank you very much. <laughs> it is time now for our live audience to pick one panelist who will go on to face our contestant winner in the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Who will it be? Major Garrett, Alexandra Petri. Or Robbie Mook, audience, would you please take out your phones and follow the texting instructions on the screen? The audience votes have been tallied, and our panelist winner tonight, Alexandra Petri. Thank you. Great job. Good work. Thanks, guys. High five. Alexandra, really well done. And let's now bring our audience winner, Tommy Bobo, back on stage for the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. All right, the final round is very simple. In a moment, we will reveal a topic related somehow to tonight's theme, politicking, as you recall. You'll each have a minute to come up with an IDK, something interesting to tell us on that topic. No Googling, no audience help, just your own big brains to rely on. In case you're tempted to fabricate something, remember that our fact checker Femi Oke is standing by. Okay, now what's our final topic? Well, one thing that's sure to kill the career of any politician is scandal. And so that's our final topic tonight, scandal. Tell us something we don't know about any kind of scandal, political or otherwise, a recent one, maybe from antiquity, Use your brain cells, and good luck. We'll give you a minute. While our finalists are thinking, let me remind you to visit tmsidk.com to get tickets to upcoming shows, or if you'd like to be a contestant, if you would like to suggest a theme for a future episode or recommend a panelist, give us a shout on Facebook or Twitter. We go by tmsidk underscore show. Okay, Alexandra Petri and Tommy Bobo, it's time. You will tell us something we don't know about scandal. Alexandra Petri, you first. All right. You all may know this because you're in D.C. Warren G. Harding, our 29th president, uh, illustrious fellow, recently the New York Times published an article because all, he had all these very erotic letters to his mistress, and they sort of leaked. And I think uh, enough time had passed that suddenly you no longer keep them sealed up in the vault where, you sh- where all presidential sexy letters should be kept. And they were graphic. I don't know if anyone read them, but they were... Like, he had a nickname for parts of his anatomy, and she also had <laughs> corresponding... They, they really wrote back and forth, and um, that's a thing that is now scarred into all of our brains, but I guess has not damaged Warren G. Harding's reputation any, because how could you? because how could you did you think about that as a slogan because how could you (laughs) I mean it's a little bit more relevant today than it would have been a few months ago Tommy Bobo scandal is our final topic what can you tell us that we don't know so President James Garfield after he was elected but before he was inaugurated he spoke to the graduating class of Harvard and in his speech he told them to not work so hard and to set aside time for reading because he was such an avid reader that he actually had a custom-built chair that had one high arm and one low arm so he could throw his legs over and read in a more comfortable way. So not really quite a scandal, but he did encourage the greatest minds of of a generation to not work. 
All right, it is time for our live audience now to pick a winner. Remember the criteria. Was it something you did not know? Was it something that was worth knowing? And was it something that's demonstrably true? Okay, first, I'd like you to make some noise for Alexandra Petri. Very enthusiastic. And now for Mr. Tommy Bobo. I think the Bobo has it. (laughs) Tommy Bobo, congratulations. Alexandra Petri, great job. Nice job. Tommy, what prize could we give you that is close to commensurate with the wisdom you've dispensed tonight? Well, do you remember back at the very top of the show when we heard about the relationship between winning elections and life expectancy? What we found was that world leaders died nearly three years earlier than their counterparts who did not serve in office. Well, Tommy, we want you to live as long as possible. So we forged for you this official doctor's note excusing you from ever having to run for any sort of political office. (laughs) Also suitable for framing. Congratulations. And that is our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you didn't know about politics. Thanks to our terrific panelists, Major Garrett, Alexandra Petri, and Robbie Moop. To our fact-checker, Femi Oke. To our awesome contestants. And thanks especially to you for coming to play Tell Me Something. On our next episode, we're headed to Boston to talk about cities. Our panelists, the Harvard economist Ed Glazer, the MIT urban planning scholar Amy Glassmeyer, and one of our favorite comedians, Eugene Merman. Cities are a surprisingly good habitat for what creature? Does this live under the ground or above the ground? Some are underground. Is it drummers? next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, and Rachel Jacobs. David Herman is our technical director. He also composed our theme music. Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on TMSIDK.com. You can also listen without ads by signing up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tellme. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.